Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? And it's good afternoon and another episode of Writer on the Road coming your way from sunny Brisbane. I've got a guest here with me today that leaves me nothing but excited and if our conversation goes on track, off track, I blame my guest entirely. Um, I have the beautiful, beautiful Helen, or Helen Young with me and I've just been reading your bio, Helen, and I thought... Okay, I've got nothing to say. You are amazing. <laughs> um, now, Helen's bio says that she's a writer, pilot, sailor and photographer. And I know Helen has re- written six books and she's working on her seventh. Uh, but I know her through Facebook and all her beautiful pictures of sunrises and sunsets. And I'll, <laughs> let, I'll let Helen uh, fill you in, everyone, on her story at the moment and then we'll backtrack to her writing because I'm jealous and I want to go and live with her and throw that beautiful hunk of a husband overboard. But I know that's not going to happen. Welcome, Helen. Oh, Helen, sorry. <laughs> hey, it's all right. I answer to hey you. Anything beginning with H-E is fine by me. So <laughs> please don't worry. My mother gave me a slightly awkward name because I was born in Canada. So they gave me the French version. Nothing but trouble ever since. But <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to be here. And thank you very much. My bio sounds far more impressive than I actually am. I'm just one of those people who go, oh, that looks like fun. Let's go and do that. So ultimately, you know, it, it looks good on the page, but it's just been a heck of a lot of fun along the way. Um, I was a pilot for 26 years. I'm currently on extended leave from that so that we could go sail the coast of Queensland and hopefully head off to New Caledonia next year. So, yeah, and loving being able to write, although I'm probably not writing as much as I was when I had a full-time busy, crazy day job. So, there you go. <laughs> yeah, and it's the old adage, if you want something done, ask a busy person. Yes. Uh, but at least New Caledonia has a little bit of French in it, so you'll be able to uh, luxuriate in your name. Uh, <laughs> Helen, I know you said you're not doing much writing at the moment, but if you'd like to describe your lifestyle to us, some of our listeners may understand, but the others of us may, may go, wow, you've got so much to write about, and yes, we're <laughs> jealous. So uh, if you'd like to talk us through your current situation. Okay, we live on a 40-foot catamaran called Rubenesque. Um, At the moment, we're moored in Cairns because we needed to be so that we could nip off to the Romance Writers Conference down in Adelaide. And we've got another function down in um, Brisbane in a week's time. And you can't just leave a boat. So it's it's an absolute – it was a dream of ours. It was a long-term dream. It took us 18 years of plotting and planning and scrimping and saving to get to the point where we could buy our beautiful boat. Um, and, and this was never the boat that I was going to buy because they aren't the prettiest-looking boat on the water. But what they do have going for them is a great deal of room and a lot of space. So for me, in a writing day, um, if we're anchored somewhere, then I'm probably going to get up pretty early in the morning and do some writing. Um, And if it's a day where we're travelling, and that quite often happens on the boat, you know, people, and I paint that picture for you all on Facebook too, that life is wonderful and everything is fantastic. But clearly there are some mornings where you wake up at 2am and go, oh my goodness, the wind has come from a different direction to what was forecast. So now we're up anchor as soon as she's light and we're on our way. 
we plan at five knots um, when passage plan, so five knots an hour is all we get out of Rubidesk. So that means if we're doing a 40-mile day, we've got eight hours' worth of sailing. Depending on the conditions, I might get to write during that. But sometimes it's going to be a matter of I'm up on the helm, I'm helping Graham, and we can, we're interchangeable on the boat. Both of us can do everything. Um, but the main priorities are I end up doing most of the navigating and most of the weather reading, and he does most of the steering and lets me do some writing. But it means that the writing schedule is a whole lot less predictable than I've ever had before. So from a writing perspective, it's taken some give and take to get used to giving giving enough care, I guess, care, care and, and feeding, which is what we did a whole panel on um, down at Romance Writers. But, you know, you have to look after your marriage and you have to look after the people around you that support you through all of this so if we rock up at an island and graham wants to go for a hike it would be pretty mean of me to say you know what i'm going to stay on the boat and write and hey i'd like to explore the islands too so we head off and then i have to find some time to do the writing i am finding work count works better for me than it did ever before so if i go righto i'm going to do 1500 words today and as soon as i've finished 1500 words no matter where that is we can go and play so that makes me focus. Yeah. And one of the problems with that, I'm guessing, is that those dawn hours on a yacht with the water so very, very still and glassy are the times you want to be out there fishing and then you come back for breakfast at <laughs> 9 o'clock when the water, when the waves start to ripple. Yeah, absolutely. Not that I'm a huge hunter-gatherer. Um, in fact, neither of us are very successful in the hunter-gatherer department, sadly. We'd like to be a whole lot more successful than we are and we tow lures every time we're underway, but we don't catch as much as we'd like. But certainly those early mornings, you know, if we're at Anchorage, they're, they're the time you want to explore because it's just beautiful. Taking the kayak out for paddle if you've got whales in the area is just amazing. Um None of this has found its way into a book yet, but I'm sure that it will <laughs> sometime in the future. <laughs> yeah, and I've been reading through um, Helen's blog blog posts. Um, as I said, I know Helen mainly through Facebook, and as I was reading through Helen's blog posts, I actually started to get very excited on your behalf, Helen. The plot, uh, I guess, twists and turns that you have there and the story ideas, they must be milling over in your head. And we're looking at islands. We're looking at Maggie Island or Magnetic Island here in Australia, Orpheus Island, South Mile Island, Great Keppel Island, Fraser Island, all those places I've been to. I notice Helen's got a wonderful interest in old ships. Now, I know on Fraser Island there's um, shipwrecks, on South Mole there's shipwrecks, uh, Great Keppel, who knows what goes on there, but Orpheus, <laughs> uh, it, it is very exciting. You And lighthouses was the other thing that I've noted down yep. here. Lighthouses, shipwrecks and islands, is that going to feed into one of your stories one day? It, it absolutely will, um, and it will certainly be a dual timeline because I think, you know, the, the history of the Australian coastline from, from when white settlers turned up um, is really quite dramatic in many cases, and the histories of many of our lighthouses are are horrendous, <laughs> the things that went on and the things that they had to put up with. Um, so some of those islands have had lighthouses that have had families on them that pretty much all went insane or you know, there was deaths. Um, we're heading up to Lizard Island, which, of course, is the whole story there of, um, and I've forgotten her name now, but there was a, a woman and her child escaped because the local Aboriginal tribe, quite rightly, was was quite ticked off that these white settlers had turned up on their patch, but she ended up um, adrift in a water tank with her small child um, and ended up perishing. So that there is an enormous amount of fodder there for the backstory of, of those and, and looking at it in historical context and then bringing 
the modern day story to light with somebody's connection back to it and whether that's got some drama and, and some suspense in it or whether it's more of just the emotional journey of somebody going back to find their roots and going oh you know great uncle fred wasn't all that we thought he was he was in fact a you know pretty mean sort of man or, or whatever it is but yeah and, and hey islands are an amazing way of trapping your characters together and really turning the heat up on them so yeah i do quite like that idea yeah. <laughs> and from memory it's been a while since i've sailed that way uh fraser island was um named after was it eliza fraser there was a eliza story about fraser. A yeah, so there's yeah, a story yeah. there as well. We're very spoilt for drama and catastrophe here on the Queensland coast of Australia <laughs> with our cyclones and our, um, what would you call it, pirates and buccaneers and um, convicts, I think, have a lot convicts, to answer for. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, certainly the British settlers. So all in all, you know, we're, we're it's, um, I guess, fodder for the mill for our storylines. Um, now, Helen writes Romantic Suspense. And in her biography, I noticed there that you have won awards for every one of your books or almost all of your books, including a very recent win, like last week or last weekend, where Northern Heat won the favourite romantic um, suspense book. Is suspense, that correct? Yeah, that, that was actually at the beginning uh, um, earlier in the year. Um, maybe I haven't updated something on my blog. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I knew you won, won something the down there, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, not not at, at Romance Writers of Australia, not this time. Um, so this was at the Australian Romance Readers Association. It was voted favourite um, romantic suspense, um, which is lovely because that, that was sort of a back-to-back -back win. So it's lovely to find readers are still connecting with the stories. Um, and, yeah, I, I won two rubies fairly early on the romantic books of the year um, with my first and second books, which, which was very timely because at the time I was finding myself between publishers. So... Winning those two awards gave me a foot into Penguin, which has been a very happy home for me. Mm. Okay. So now I don't know which way to go. I don't know whether to talk about publishing or I was hoping to dovetail <laughs> very nicely into the Romance Writers Association conference last week. Mm. Where... Oh, well, happy to talk about that for you. <laughs> yeah, I know Rachel Johns and Michelle Summers won the Ruby yes. Awards this year. They did, yes, and and both of those two books are, are fabulous books. Michelle Summers um, is a romantic suspense, so it's fantastic to see that sort of, of book uh, winning the romantic book of the year. And, and it was also it was an interesting one because Random House put it out as a serialisation um, and it's now being released as a single book and we're hoping that it will be out in print very soon. Um, no, I'm not sure that it was Random House. I think I've just given you a bump steer there. I'm not sure who the publisher was now. Anyway... Um, you know, I think it's it's a, a wonderful book and a wonderful validation. Rachel Johns is just going from strength to strength um, and she's trying her hands at different genres. This one, her, the book that won the award, The Patterson's Girls, um, isn't the same as one of her rural romance. It's um, a little bit um, more in-depth than that. Probably in the vein of, of Monica McInerney, not, not the same. Monica's got a particular touch all of her own um but rachel's certainly written um a very worthy story and that book also of course won the arvia award this year um which is a wonderful validation mm. yeah and i'm pretty excited we've got rachel coming on to the podcast in the middle of september so i'll be able to ask her about uh was it the patterson's girls i think i've got that patterson's on the shelf yes yeah, yeah. so i'm pretty excited to have that uh and i know i have a couple of your books on my shelf half moon bay and safe harbor are both there somewhere um but as you know i've been living in the caravan and you know what that's yeah. like boxes everywhere so i went routing for them so i could show everybody but forget it they're they're buried, yeah. <laughs> they're buried somewhere <laughs> yeah and and you've already touched on how difficult it is to find space and time 
to write. Mm. Um, but when it's a priority, you have to make it a priority, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, I've taken up reading on, on my iPhone of all things um, because I don't keep physical books anymore. There's simply not the room on a boat. Um, and it means even when I finished with the first draft manuscript and I have to edit on paper for that first draft, I'm throwing it in the bin now, <laughs> which kind of feels a bit weird. I said to Graham, oh, that's strange. I've never thrown one of these out before. I've always, you know, put it away somewhere. Yeah. No, off to the bin, relegated to the dumpster. Um, yeah. But, yes, you do have to be pretty um, – what's the word uh, I'm looking for? It's gone. But you, you've got to make sure that, that everything's got its place and, and that time-wise you're very meticulous about keeping a grip on the time that you need to write. Otherwise, it just disappears. Yeah. <laughs> In- and it disappears with whales and dolphins. Don't feel so yeah, sorry for Helen. And just another sunset. <laughs> yeah, and turtles and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not talking yachts. I'm not going there just yet, but I will, I'm sure. Uh, and the other thing we were talking about was time and space. There's something to be said for simple living and uncluttered minds and mm. being able to focus um, very quickly uh, when you need to because you're not distracted by anything else. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, I think living simply is certainly part of what we love on the boat. You know, we, we're... We have a water maker, we have solar panels, we have wind generator. So we pretty much make our own power, we make our own water um, and we can be away from from shore for three to four weeks. And that time is very precious and that time is also, as you say, a great opportunity to sink into a story, Um, especially if we're moored somewhere where regardless of what's going on with the wind, you don't have to worry about what the forecast is doing. Um, It gives you um, the only distraction is... (laughs) is Facebook <laughs> and social media. And really then the easy answer to that is just turn off the modem and all of that disappears. Um, and half the time, you know, if we, we really are out at the outer islands, we might be in an area where we don't have any sort of internet connection. That can be frustrating. Invariably it happens just when you need to be getting an email from somebody. Um, but on the other, you know, the upside of it is you can get some really good quality writing and get deep into the story. Yeah, and I think what I found, I think the very first story I wrote when I was on on my yacht, um, now Helen's yacht goes at five knots of wind and it travels very nicely. Ours was a ferro cement sloop and I think we had to have 12 knots before we even moved. So my my ex-husband only ever wanted to go out in storms. It wasn't very much fun, but I did love points (laughs) A and B. Uh, Yeah, but the thing that I've noticed was... Every day you were focused on the detail, whether it be a slight breeze, whether it be a current, whether it be what the birds were doing, the sunrise, the sunset, and they are the most important things, I think, for a writer. Um, but, you again, you may have different opinions, but being able to talk with such authority and intimacy about the emotions and the feelings of your landscape as you write, have you found that that's given depth to your writing? Yeah, look, I think it has. Safe Harbour in particular, um, it's one that's based at, it's essentially set in the Bundaberg area, but I've called it something different um, because I wanted, you know, I didn't want to use a real town because there's all sorts of shenanigans going on in the real town. But certainly that book grew a, a large amount out of being stuck in the Bundaberg River in bad weather and taking in the tiny little details of what was going on in the river um, and the people that you spoke to had a different you know, a different impact on the story than if you're just passing through when you're in the community. Um, I was fortunate that a taxi driver there decided while he was taking me to the shops to do the shopping that he'd give me a, a free trip around the community so that I could have a look because it was not long after the, the devastating floods. 
Um, so you get a very different take on it when you're on the water and you get a very different take on the landscape when you're passing it so slowly. You know, most of us see it from a car going at 100 clicks or from an aeroplane up at 35,000 feet. And to see those coastlines sliding by you or to be anchored in, an, in a Marillion Harbour is the latest one. We sat there watching the great big ships turning as they came in to pick up the sugar load and going, you know, that's something that most people wouldn't get to see. And, and I'm sure it will crop up in a story somewhere because it's nice to be able to share it. Um, you know, you do get a different appreciation for whales when they're swimming under your boat and you're, they're longer than you are and they're looking at you and you're thinking, yeah, you're interacting with these things in a way that you just you can't do it unless you're out on your private vessel. If you're on a boat full of 50 other people, it would be a very different experience to the two of us just going, oh, my goodness, have you seen that thing? Have you yeah. seen that yeah. next to us and it's just there? So, yeah, and, and you do. You, the pace of life um, is so much slower when you're on a boat nothing happens in a hurry and even when it's blowing a gale nothing happens in a hurry really including getting to safety so everything's got to be planned and plotted and thought out and I think for me coming from aviation um, that was the biggest change I was used to reading weather that was important for 24 hours now I'm used to reading weather that's important for seven days because I'm looking for the pattern and and it does it, it gives you a different perspective different set of goalposts on the world yeah and I, I think I used to notice that it was always five-day patterns of big winds uh, mm. now Helen just mentioned Marillion Harbour for those of us who aren't local that's certainly a long way north of Bundaberg but it's still that same coastline so yeah we were talking about Bundaberg but we just skipped up the coast a little bit and now I'm going <laughs> to take you back down the coast to the Sundays, where I know Helen spent some time and Sid Harbour I believe um, Yes. Certainly that was in, I think it was the 1970s, there was a huge cyclone there and boats um, were washed up and I think people were killed in those early cyclones. Um, it's natural on a boat to hide out in the mangroves, hide up the creek mm. beds. Um, story fodder again, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, definitely um, northern heat ends with a cyclone. Um, we weathered a stack of cyclones when we were living up here in Cairns. We weren't on the boat, um, but we certainly... As we were getting to the point of buying our own boat, we were keeping a close eye on what did people do up here in the cyclones because most the little marina that we're in at the moment is cyclone-proof. The main marina in Cairns, they actually evacuate all the vessels from it and they send them up behind a place called Admiralty Island um, because it's a cyclone, a, an area that's um, safe from cyclone surge and there's a lot of mangroves. Down in the Whitsundays, Able Point Marina is the main one there. But again, there's creeks and estuaries, which you'd probably be safer up those, tied off to the mangroves. Um, and that filled into the story in Cooktown um, in Northern Heat. Yeah. And with the, with the hero eventually guiding his vessel as part of a log jam, which is the way most vessels are damaged um, in, in cyclones. It's the debris that comes down that piles up around the vessel that breaks the anchor chain or breaks the mooring buoy and sweeps them away. So, you know, for, for any listeners that were in Brisbane during the Brisbane floods, that, that wonderful image of that chappy shepherding the floating walkway down the river and out so that it missed the major bridges – and we saw vessels being washed away on pontoons. 
that's the stuff that, that really causes the issue. So being able to put that into Northern Heat uh, was very much drawing on real life and what actually happens up this part of the world when there is a cyclone. Yeah. Now, Helen does uh, conduct writing workshops, and I think it's through the Queensland Writers' Centre at the moment, and she has been out to the outback as well as the coast. She was out at Winton just recently, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, but when you're teaching your students, Helen, I'm guessing that you would stress that those details are what brings the story alive and living them and seeing them and touching them. I notice there's a tendency online at the moment to say, oh, just Google Earth it. And I'm thinking, oh, when I wrote my mining story and I'm now doing Timber Cutter's Daughter, which I'm going to speak to you about in the moment and pick your brain about Fraser Island and the timbers, <laughs> uh, I could not have written what I wrote if I hadn't been there, smelt it, tasted the dirt, all those kinds of things. Is that mm. what you share with your students? Look, it is. I, I am a believer that you need to go and see where it is that you are writing about. But having said that, I have friends who very successfully published books, which they've invented the place. It's got nothing to do with reality. And they've not even lived in those sorts of communities. For me, I think, you know, the old adage about write what you know, that doesn't mean to say I need to be a serial killer, but it does, for me, mean that I need to know the environment that I'm talking in. The best piece of advice I've ever had was from Bernadette Foley who was my my first publisher with Ashette and she said to me treat your landscape as though it's another character and I think of it like that so if I'm describing Cooktown I think of it as Cooktown and what does Cooktown smell and taste and feel like and and how does Cooktown sound and what sort of personality has Cooktown got um, so you you then you don't even think about it because you're simply treating it as its own role in the story. And I think that's part of, it's certainly the feedback that I get from readers is that's part of what they like is that there's an authenticity to my landscapes because they're places that I've visited, they're places we've camped, we've driven through, we've lived in. Um, and it was important for me with those first three books to be able to bring North Queensland to a readership who quite often don't really think of North Queensland being as far away from the rest of Australia as it is until they hop on a flight and go, how long? Three and a half hours? What? <laughs> because it is a long way and, and stuff that we you take for, for granted if you're living in the capital cities doesn't necessarily happen as easily up in North Queensland. So, you know, tyranny of distance is a big part of that landscape and how that can play into a story is just wonderful. Yeah, and if my overseas listeners uh, are starting to get a picture of how we live out here, it is very exotic. Uh, but even here in the city where I am at the moment in Brisbane, I've got people around me who have never left Brisbane all their lives. Mm. They've gone to school here and now they're teaching in the same schools and I'm going, how could you possibly not even explore the outback Queensland, forget the rest of Australia mm. because there's so many magic stories out there to be had? Mm. And they look at me blankly and I'm going... Well, you know, kids in the outback wouldn't live in the city for quids because there's nothing to do here. Yeah, that's right. Thank goodness some of us have adventurous genes is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's what attracted me to you in the first place, Helene, because I was watching and I, when I grew up I want to be just like you and I'm probably a little bit of a mini you now with my caravan and my car uh, tripping around <laughs> the place um, and I have no intentions of stopping, much to my sister's disgust because she wants me to settle down and grow up and I'm going, no, not going to happen, I'm going straight to retirement. Uh, now, just to keep the adventure theme running, I noticed you were out in Outback Queensland I think it was called the Outback Writers Festival out around yeah. Winton area. What was that like? Yeah, that was lovely to, to go back to places that I hadn't been for 20-odd years. I remember going out there when I was charter flying out of Archerfield and thinking, oh, my goodness, landing and it's just, you know, such a different landscape out there and, and the monoliths that they've got and the jump-ups 
um, are quite extraordinary. Um, it was very dry um, and they just had some rain before we turned up. So there was that very faint, almost a haze of green, just as everything was starting to get a little bit of a, of a kick on again. Um, but it was beautiful and, and, you know, it's lovely to get amongst country people again and go, they're a little more black and white, I think, than city people. What you see is what you get. And most of them are genuine, open, honest people that are happy to have a chat. Um, happy to have a yarn. They were very supportive of the Writers' Festival. They had the film festival kicking off um, just as we finished out there. Uh, and there's a lot of work happening with the dinosaurs in that area. There's um, a large stampede um, area that's got all the footprints, but they're also discovering more and more dinosaurs. Um, so it's it's for, for farmers that are struggling, many of them have ended up being able to get some work to, to keep going in those sorts of places. But it really brings home to you, again, the difference between a capital city and even somewhere like Cairns and that outback, which, you know, it's the extremes out there for the people that are struggling through those conditions. I don't think you can imagine it unless you actually go and see it. Um, and it's, you know, you these are people that have had four or five years of drought. Uh, uh, this is completely, well, it is related, but kind of off on a tangent. There was a comment from a friend on Facebook yesterday saying, oh, God, here we go again. There's more rain coming our way. And I looked at the weather pattern and thought, you need to get a life, my darling, because for the people out west, they're just about to get some more rain <laughs> and they will be delighted. So, you know, what's an annoyance to us on the coast is just a godsend for those people out west that have been struggling and, and hanging on for so long through such tough times so it's always good to get back out there and ultimately we will be doing what you're doing so when we come ashore there'll be a van <laughs> and we'll be driving around Australia and look there there are more people out there doing it than you think and you would have noticed mm -hmm. on the yacht that there are or sorry catamaran out there doing uh, your lifestyle as well uh, when you're in the cities it's probably 90% of people are doing the nine-to-five drudgery but those of us that are out there doing it know the secret. We need those 90% of people doing it so that we can have the life that we like. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and when I talk about those outback, um, I guess, stories, here in Australia the rural romance is huge at the moment. Uh, we mentioned Rachel Johns. There's a whole bucket load of rural romance writers. If I wanted to have romance writers on my podcast for the rest of my life, I'd have actually have no trouble filling them in even here in <laughs> Australia. Uh, and I'm very, very privileged and lucky to have found, I guess, as I said, my tribe among the romance writers here, here in Australia. The Romance Writers Conference in Adelaide, I need to go back to that because I need to know what happened. I watched all the hairdos and I watched all the painted toenails uh, <laughs> and I watched the glamorous photos, but it was five days of education. Mm, absolutely. And and I, I tend to go as for the camaraderie and, and the companionship because writing is solitary and I think it is important that as writers we connect when we can with other writers. Otherwise you can either fall prey to all your own self-doubts or you can have long-distance envy um, and go, oh, my goodness, they all seem to be so, going so well and I'm not or, you know, whatever it is, um, whatever your particular quirk is, it gets worse when you're all by yourself. So it's great to catch up with people. But I also think, you know, education um, and continuing to learn is important. Michael Haig was delivering the Friday workshop. Um, I hadn't had the pleasure of doing his before. Um, so that was great to just, you know, spend the day immersed in, in being reminded of telling a good story and story arc. 
similar but different to to what I, I tend to use um, Christopher Vogler's hero's journey. Really, it's not dissimilar with the way Michael Haig's talking, but he was talking about other elements like the essence of a character. Um, so from my perspective, it was it was great to, to get down there and do that workshop. You've then got panels and workshops for the rest of the weekend. So depending on whether you're an emerging writer, an established writer or a starter writer, um, there's some sort of, of um, little session every day what most sessions have three options so that wherever you're at with your writing career you can go and get a little bit of extra nurturing rachel um rachel johns Catherine hines christina wells myself did a panel called the care and feeding of an author's career because we thought it was important as authors who've got established careers but are still having to make changes to keep that career going in the direction we want um, that it was good to be able to share that in an honest forum um, with other writers from from all levels, so you know that that's it's always good to be able to give back as well. You know, RWA has been very good to me um, in a support role um, and and provided a lot of opportunities. So it's nice to be able to give that back. But of course, then there's the party times and the quiet times, and and you make time to catch up with your publisher and your agent um, as well as other writers. So it's it's very much a um, an inclusive industry event and very well regarded. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with romance writers and I'm sure if you went anywhere in the world you'd still have friends. Um, I've got my mm. partner in crime, Melinda Hammond, over in England and I'm sure if I rocked up on a doorstep she'd welcome me. Um, well, at least <laughs> I, I hope she would, um, but I know where she lives <laughs> now. Uh, but that care and maintenance, can I take you back to that for a little bit? What was some of the advice you gave uh, to writers? Because I do know that I'm hearing eight and nine hour writing days, more and more pressure to turn out books more and more quickly, mm. um, series, all that kind of thing. Uh, are you finding that people need to be reminded that it's okay to write a little bit more slowly and take a bit of a break as you as you enjoy the journey? Yeah, I, I think my my the thing I always want to say to them is, look, this is this is a business. You are setting yourself up as a small business, so that's going to involve a whole stack of stuff that you probably haven't thought about. Um, but it's important that you start off in a professional vein to start with, that you remember that the relationship between you and your publisher is a business arrangement. Some of us are lucky and get on very, very well with our publishers, but it's still a business relationship. And sales, unfortunately, are the thing that drives our next contract. So we are only as good as our last book, and that's a very sad thing. Some publishers will still nurture a writer through sales that aren't stellar, um, and they may direct you in a slightly different direction because they've always got an eye on what to sell. Um, as you say, the pressure at the moment seems to have built. I actually don't think that pressure is necessarily real. I think I think some of us are doing it to ourselves. I certainly know that my publisher and, and Ellie Watts at Penguin um, is more than happy that I've had to take a bit of a break this year because there was a whole stack of family stuff going on. She understood that I needed to just step back and pretty much needed the well to fill back up again for me to be able to creatively step back up to the plate. Um, and they don't want you just churning out a book that's not going to keep your readers happy. You're better off to say, you know what, I need another 12 months because this story is big and this story is going to take a little bit longer to write than trying to just churn out a book. Um, I do know, and they'll stay nameless, but I do know there are a couple of writers who've done very well but are really feeling the weight of it and feeling like their success isn't what they hope for simply because they've now got so much pressure on their shoulders. And I don't think it should be like that. You know, this is something we do because we love it. Even while we're saying, I'm saying to you it's a small business, 
you need to still enjoy it because it's creative and you're not going to be as creative as you should be, as you could be in the same wonderful way if you've loaded yourself up with a whole stack of pressures. So for my advice is just look after yourself. And if that means having to step back and say, I need an extension, I need a little bit of extra time, or you know what, thank you, it's been a lovely two-book contract, I just need to take a breather and I'll be back with you next year. Um, that's okay. Yeah, and and I think we need to, to stress that to anyone who's starting out. It is a business. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff bandied around. I'm, I'm firmly in the indie publishing camp. And it's yep. interesting to hear what you say about um, traditional public publishing, that you're only as good as your last book. Um, there mm. is that pressure of sales and they're only measured in certain ways. They're only measured through that, I've forgotten, book scan or something like Nielsen, that. Nielsen yeah. book scan. Yep. Yeah, and, it, and it's pretty scary stuff. And I know traditional, some traditional writers are feeling the pressure. Um, and I guess a lot of, or some authors, I have to be very careful what I say, are, are going hybrid author now, getting their rights back yep. for their books, um, republishing their backlists um now you have a book in the making are we allowed to talk yes. about that or is it a bit soon yet um no we can talk about that I'm, I'm hoping that we'll have a release date fairly soon for it um it's a little bit different to my my previous six so it's a step away from romantic suspense and more into sort of the general women's fiction um and it's 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 been driven as i said i've had a one of those years where i my mother passed away um almost 12 months ago and we finally got to crunch time of having to clean out five generations of house um, because my my great-grandmother and my grandmother had bought the house originally back in 19, um, 1910, I think it was. Um, so there was, there was a lot of angst that went on with all of that. And families, sadly, don't seem to come to their best um, at times of, of grief within a family. So, you know, that's fed into this new story. Um, I also found out a great deal more just going through everything about my mum's career um, in the WAF because she joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force during World War II. And I knew about it and it was certainly something that I was going to mention in the story, but it's turned into a dual timeline because there was so much material there that I just couldn't let go by. I thought, you know, we hear so much about the nurses that have been to war and we hear about the men, but there was a whole army of women that put their shoulders to the wheel in Australia and kept it turning. And and I think that they deserve to be honoured. So it's been lovely to go back through all of that um, and put that in as a dual timeline. Um, there is, of course, going to have to be a little bit of action because I couldn't just have a book that was all family drama. So there's a there's a very deep family secret which ultimately leads to a showdown and and a bit of um, a bit of suspense towards the end of the story. Uh, and it's set out in Western Queensland in an area that that I know quite well, um, but also echoes with my mother having been born in Cairns um, and then moved away when she joined the WAF. So. A lot of it is drawing from, from what's gone on in the last 18 months. So hopefully, you know, they say you should drip your blood onto the page. So hopefully I've dripped a little bit onto the story and, and readers will enjoy it and, and accept that, you know, I do want to broaden the genre that I write in. Romantic suspense is fabulous and I don't imagine not writing more romantic suspense, but I do want to try some other stuff as well and explore a little bit more of the emotional side of families. 
Yeah, and I think I, I lived in Townsville for many years and that was a army base, I suppose. And yes. There were some wonderful writers there who were looking at the women in World War Two and the stories that were coming out and they were writing books about it. People still remember the stories. Um, they've still got the family history, as you said, and the diaries yep. and the journals and the paraphernalia. And it was really exciting just to slow down and sit and, you know, look at those newspaper clippings and whatever else there was and realise yep. that women are strong, women have always been strong and always survived adversity, I guess. Oh, and, and amazingly, you know, I think Australian settlers, um, you know, and, and really you could say the same thing for the Aboriginal women as well, so many of them have had to deal with adversity and they just dust themselves off and, and get on with it and we we tend to hear about the pastoralists and the husband that's made good but you don't hear so much about the woman who was in fact you know raising 13 children and running a sheep station and you know all the rest of it interestingly we while we were down in Adelaide we went out to Sepplesfield winery and I, we did the the tour there and they talked about the fact that 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 Mrs Seppelt had um 21 pregnancies 16 children and thir- no, yeah, 13 of them survived. And and all the while they were growing this amazing business which, which housed 100 staff, which fed them all because there was no way of feeding them because of where they were. And I think those women are just remarkable and their stories aren't told often enough. So if we're seeing more of it, Barbara Hannay does beautiful stories set in North Queensland that quite often have that dual timeline with a link back to Second World War as well. Um, and, and I think it's great that those women are finally getting some kudos for what they do. Some of the women that I met out at Winton as well are, you know, are, are women that are running the, the um, have I still got you there? I feel like I've lost yeah, you. Yeah, no, I'm here. I know, got you. Oh, good. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, they're out there running the, the the properties because, you know, the husbands had to go and get a job on the mine to make ends meet or whatever. So, you know, I think I think there's plenty of fodder for strong women to put into stories in Australia. Yeah, and and I think it's very easy, um, as Helen said, to tap into that. And Barbara, Hannah, if you're out there listening to us, you are on my list. Um, I believe we were in Townsville at the same time and I think we attended a couple of conferences at the same time. I have hung around with some really um, exultant company and everybody else is really, really famous and I'm really, really interviewing them. <laughs> I love it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be doing a fabulous job. <laughs> uh, that's what I said. I've got lots of famous friends. It's great. Uh, yeah. Uh, now we have covered an awful lot of material. Uh, for the first time, I actually took five pages of notes before I came on with you because I just got carried away with your beautiful photography. And we've covered it all. It's just amazing. Um, the stories that you have to tell um, and you're living this exotic life on a yacht with um, fishing and diving and um, solar panels and the handsome hero who keeps wandering backwards and forwards <laughs> in the background um, and see I was on a mono hole so you couldn't actually do that without knocking each other over so I can see the advantage <laughs> of catamarans uh, uh, and it's not all romantic as Helene said um, she was in an old stomping ground of mine called Magnetic Island and she was anchored in Horseshoe Bay and she sounded, made it sound so exotic um on facebook and the most beautiful sunsets and sunrises and i'm just going oh this is beautiful but i know for a fact that um horseshoe bay is not a really safe anchorage and it's not a very calm anchorage and if you look at the um what do you call it mast it's always moving so you're never ever ever still but i'm guessing that's not quite as bad on a cat either 
No, well, that's right. The catamaran is a little bit more stable than, than our mono cousins. So we do sit in anchorages like that and go, ha-ha, suckers, <laughs> which isn't very kind of us. However, we can also find ourselves at a bigger disadvantage if the swell happens to be coming beam onto us as well. It's still not pleasant. So, you know, Magnetic Island was, was lovely, but, yes, in the right condition. We'd been at Great Keppel Island, another lovely anchorage that's got some options, um, but that's one of those where you basically revolve around the island as the wind changes to find a calm anchorage because it gets very unpleasant if you've got a little bit of sidewards chop coming in on you and you're sitting there thinking, oh, we don't get seasick, but I, I do know I have friends at sail who do, and it's that sort of stuff at anchor that can make your life miserable. Yeah, or the um, fishing fishing um, fleets with their dories hanging out the back and they'd have 20 and 30 dories hanging out the back as they did and you'd be sailing in the dark with your spotlight going, am I going <gasps> to run over any of these things? Or yes, yeah. yeah. Night, night sailing is lovely in, in those sorts of more remote areas where there's less chance of running into some stray fishing boat that hasn't got his lights on and hasn't bothered to have a radio or, you know, and you don't know he's there. Yeah, that's that's always a little bit off-putting. But night sailing is a charm of its own as, you, as the sun's setting and you're sailing into that, that glowing, growing darkness is just beautiful. Yeah, you can mm. almost imagine handsome heroes and happily ever afters, can't you, everybody? <laughs> uh, now, remember the romance writing. It is a wonderful lifestyle. Helen has certainly got it down pat and then she's going to come and be a landlubber like me and we'll drive around Australia together. Uh, what's next Yay. for Helen and Graham? All right, well, we're heading. We're heading up to Lizard Island. That's the next plan for, for the next couple of months. Um, and we've got some other friends on boats who are heading that way as well. And then we're hoping to go further up around the Flinders Island group um, and into Princess Charlotte Bay. And this is country that I, I've flown into Lizard Island when I first started the job with Qantas Link. We used to fly the Twin Otters in there. So I've seen it from the air. I've landed on it but we haven't actually got to explore it. So that's high on my list. Um, and then the ribbon reefs, which go up from there, again, I've spent, you know, 18 years flying out of Cairns, flying over this, looking down, going, oh, it looks so perfect. I can't wait to get there. And it's appeared in, you know, just about every story. There's a description of flying up those reefs because it's just so beautiful. So really looking forward to that. Um, and then we're coming back down to Townsville to leave the boat there so we can fly over and spend Christmas with Graham's family in England. Um, because his mum is now our only surviving parent, so I think it's important that we go and see her. Um, and that also ties in with a story that I'm, I'm writing, which is more of a thriller suspense, I guess, uh, which goes from Australia to, to France to England and back again. So it will be set in Manchester, and I do have a tame policeman to go to talk to while I'm over there. So <laughs> looking forward to the research. I did the research for France the last time I was over there when my sister was living in France. So, um, yes, this is a research trip as well as a family trip. Yeah. Um, and then next year we're hoping to, once we come back to Australia in, in early January, we'll start to plot our trip to New Caledonia. Yes, yeah, so um, don't be jealous, anybody. Um, uh, <laughs> Helen is le leaving the most beautiful reef in the world to go to England for Christmas, so she's just going to be cold and wet and miserable. <laughs> uh, forget the log fires and the red wine and the oh, handsome heroes. It gets better and better. Helen, it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. I want to finish with one last thing from you. Um, Valerie Parve has been around since the day when I wrote my first Mil Milsey back in Tasmania over 20 years ago. And I noticed you had a Christmas poem by Valerie Parve on your website. It was um, it just jumped out at me. I thought, why on earth have you got a poem by Valerie Parve on your website? 
she was kind enough to simply write it. I can't remember what was going on now, but there was sort of she and I chat on Facebook. Um, we're not, and I see her every conference. But you know, I'd love to call Valerie a friend, but I'm, I wouldn't be quite brave enough. I don't know her well enough to say she's a friend of mine. But she's certainly been an inspirational um, writer in my life. Um, and she whipped up this poem, which was just gorgeous. And I thought. I, I, I've got to put it up because this is just amazing and, and who else is going to write a poem for me? Um, and it, it was a very timely one as well. So, yes, I'm very grateful that Valerie took the time to write me a poem. <laughs> yeah. Now, Valerie Parr, for anyone that doesn't know, she was the queen of romance writing for many, many years and she wrote all the how-to writing books. I think I got my first one from her in Spiral Bound and then it went on to, oh to make lots of money and all that kind of stuff. And I was pretty excited even when I saw her name I don't even know if people like Lynn Wilding are around she was a writer and she turned literary agent yeah. I'm not sure no Lynn Wilding unfortunately has passed away um mm. hence we have the the Lynn Wilding award at every romance writers conference for somebody who's um put in above and beyond for the romance community um Valerie Parve was made a um um oh, what's the title for it uh, Lifetime member, lifetime member for RWA, yeah. Yeah. And you know she's she's been a wonderful inspiration for so many of us, and she's so very generous with her time. And nothing is too much trouble. If you really needed to ask Valerie something, she would you know step up to the plate and and help you out. So she's a wonderful woman. Yeah. Mm. And these women, these names that I'm mentioning, as I said, they started Romance Writers of Australia. Mm. They've kept it going for years, and it's been passed, I guess, very ably into the hands of people like. Amy Andrews and Helen Young and there's lots and lots of other romance writers in there. It's all a voluntary organisation and they're doing a wonderful job. Helen shared some wonderful stuff with us today and I'm very excited um, to know all about her yacht now and her, her um, what do you call it, um, sailing life and her future future life and hopefully we'll have Helen back on again one day. In the meantime, I'll just keep watching you from afar and, <laughs> and pressing the like button. <laughs> Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Okay. Thanks, Helena, and we'll talk again soon.